the only way you could get to a stage where you had that volume of data with a an organization big enough to have as much resources to foster and grow and develop the technology and the capability and the, 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 the hardware to support the software is you needed a good 10 years of people sharing pictures of fucking cats. That's what you needed. <laughs> Twenty-eighth, two 2000, the Columbia newspaper in Oregon accidentally announced the winning pick four lottery numbers in advance. The newspaper meant to print the previous set of winning numbers, but instead printed the winning numbers for the state of Virginia, which were 6855. Then, in the next Oregon lottery, guess what? Those same numbers were drawn. France, 1872. Claude Valbon kills Baron Rodemir de Terrazon. 21 years earlier, the Baron's father was murdered by another man named Claude Valbonne. Toronto, Italy, 1899. A bolt of lightning kills a man as he stands in his backyard. 30 years later, his son is killed in the exact same spot by another bolt of lightning. And on October the 8th, 1949, Rolla Primarda, the grandson of the first victim and the son of the second victim, became the third victim. J.J. Thompson wins the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1906 for proving that the electron was a particle. 31 years later, in 1937, his son, George Thompson, wins the Nobel Prize for proving that the electron is a wave. 1898, Morgan Robertson's novella, Futility, had a number of unbelievably strange similarities to the sinking of the RMS Titanic. His book described a fictional, state-of-the-art ocean liner called the Titan, which eventually collides with an iceberg on a calm April night while en route to New York City, with many passengers drowning in the frigid waters because of the lack of lifeboats, which mirrors the Titanic disaster. The description of the ocean liners is virtually identical, and even stranger, Morgan Robertson wrote a short story titled Beyond the Spectrum, which described a future war between the United States and Japan. In his fictional account, the war begins with a December surprise military strike against Hawaii and later involves the use of immensely powerful ultraviolet superweapons that inexplicably set ships aflame, blinded sailors, and burned their skin. And of course, we all know that on December the 7th, 1941, Japan initiated a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor on Oahu Island, Hawaii, and the U.S. later ended the war by dropping two atomic bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki.
Paul Thomas Anderson's 1999 film, Magnolia, opens with a similar series of incredible coincidences and synchronicities and concludes with a rain of frogs. Throughout the film, Anderson references the book of Exodus 8-2, quote, And if thou refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all thy borders with frogs. Magnolia's narrative is woven with unexplained events, many adapted from the books written by Charles Fort in the 1920s and 1930s, wherein he catalogs so-called mysterious Fortean phenomena. Lauren Coleman includes a chapter in his book, Mysterious America, the revised edition, entitled The Teleporting Animals in Magnolia, in which he discusses the connections between Fortean phenomena in the film, and also points out that one of Fort's books is visible on a library table in one of the scenes. Paul Thomas Anderson even included an end credit thanking Charles Ford. Anderson uses the narrative in Magnolia to ask the question, are these events ordered or are they random? Is there some intelligence directing these events by design or are they truly random? In Magnolia, actor Jeremy Blackman's character Stanley isn't surprised by the rain of frogs at the end of the film like the other characters are. He calmly observes the event stating, this happens. This is something that happens. And things like this do happen. These kinds of weird coincidences and strange synchronicities happen with far more frequency than we'd like to believe. We've seen it ourselves in the Pennyroyal mystery, and it's through understanding why these are things that happen that we can maybe, just maybe, glimpse the underlying girders of reality and make sense of what seems to be a chaotic and senseless world. In J.G. Ballard's fantastic 1973 novel, Crash, the main character describes a scene when the narrative literally drives off the road and embraces the mystical. Quote, Exhausted by the effort of concentrating on the traffic and holding the cars around us in their lanes, I took my hands off the wheel and let the car press on. This is an appropriate metaphor for engaging with the mystical path, the road to illumination, and with engaging the magical nature of the phenomena. It can't be forced. It can't be found. When you find yourself driving on that road, looking for that destination, you can only find it by taking your hands off the wheel and letting the car drift. It's very much related to the derive or drift of the situationists and their psychogeographies. You can't get there with intention. Part of the discovery of the destination is being lost, letting go, and being drawn unwittingly into the mystery and magic of it all. Ballard's novel uses cars, the highway, and travel as a metaphysical framework for discovery of the path. As Ballard himself states, we live in a world ruled by fictions of every kind. We live inside an enormous novel. The fiction is already there. The writer's task is to invent reality. Zadie Smith writes in her 2014 article, Sex and Wills, in The Guardian, 
The real shock of crash is not that people have sex in or near cars, but that technology has entered into even our most intimate human relations. Not man is technology forming, but technology is man forming. We had hints of this too a long time ago in Marionetti's Futurist Manifesto of 1909, which makes explicit the modernist desire to replace our ancient gods and myths with the sleek lines and violent lessons of the automobile. Smith explains that it's almost as if the stalker sadist Vaughn looks at humans as walking, talking examples of that Wittgensteinian proposal, don't ask for the meaning, ask for the use. Ballard considered Crash the first pornographic novel about technology, referring to pornography as an organizing principle, which Zadie Smith asserts is perhaps the purest example of humans asking for the use. And she argues that in Crash, the distinction between humans and things has become too small to be meaningful. Things are always using other things. Phenomena are always using other phenomena. Smith's essay about Ballard's Crash pushed my thinking in a new direction. Maybe the better question for us to ask is not what all this means, not what the Penny Royal mystery means, but what is it being used for? What's the use in all of these intersecting points and patterns, all the communications, transmissions, and synchronicities? If we follow modern philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein's reasoning, we need to be asking, what are we all being used for? Maybe we should let go of trying to understand why we're on this path. Maybe we shouldn't be searching for meaning and instead start looking for the use, the utility that we might each offer the phenomena and the magic that we encounter. Letting go of the meaning feels a bit like letting go of the will, the will of life, the will of fate, the will of time. Maybe we let the car drift off the road and maybe we let the illusion of chaos and randomness steer. And let's not forget that there's an undeniable circularity to it, the cybernetic road, because there are no straight roads, only curves turning us back and bringing us round always to where we began. Occult technologist and chaos magician Joshua Madera and I also discussed synchronicities and the use of digital devices and circuits to explore magic and reality and how cybernetics, circularity, and feedback loops are essential features of these phenomena. You know, what you were t- talking about there, you know, reminded me of stuff that Greg and that bunch we're talking about around Hellier with the idea that the synchronicities are are important to you. There there was something that Phil and, and JF were talking about on the Weird Studies podcast about synchronicities in connection with the idea of audience, uh, the idea that a synchronicity causes you to feel like there's something out there that's watching you, that's paying attention to you. Again, that idea of, of attention and that idea, that second order idea of 
you know, you observing the system and the system observing you and so on and so forth. I think as a magician, you know, again, I don't, I don't think we have really good language for this. Maybe cybernetics will help with that. But I, you know, as a magician, I would say anecdotally, experientially, that seems to be the case. I don't know what it means exactly. I don't know. I don't know how far it goes. I don't know what all it entails, but I would say certainly my experiences and the, and the anecdotal of ex experiences of many magicians that, that I know and have talked with and read and worked with would attest to the idea of there being a living world that we inhabit that is somehow watching us too. Yeah, I w but I was thinking about, uh, that's a bit of a tangent as well, <laughs> but I was thinking about um, what the, what the Hellier crew were talking about with, you know, how these, these synchronicities occur, we encounter them, uh, but they seem to be very particular to us. They seem to be very meaningful and relevant to us. And of course, a lot of people are quick to reduce those kinds of experiences to to a cognitive bias of some kind but you know i think i think that does i think that does the weird a disservice to reduce it like that uh one of my friends uh megan trainer not to be confused with the popular music artist of the same name is uh she explores that stuff she's done stuff with digital witchcraft she has written about the connection between magical circles and circuits you know there wow there's just so many places you can go with that including the the circularity inherent in all of these things heinz van forrester i think you know the arguably the founder of second order cybernetics you know he talks about how you know, if you could name one, one idea that is absolutely fundamental to cybernetics, it is circularity. And that applies both in, in simple, maybe first order, you know, if, if you're making those kind of distinctions, uh, cybernetics uh, of you know, feedback loops, which is, of course, where a lot of that stuff began, the Macy conferences on circular causal feedback systems and uh, biological and social systems. You know, the, the, the Ouroboros, which again, Heinz was a, a big fan of um, and had, from what I understand, a pretty impressive alchemy book collection himself. Um, but there's, you know, the Ouroboros is often a potent mystical or magical symbol. Not sure that I know what reality is anymore, you know, outside of, again, of, of a casual, everyday, consensual meaning of the word. I think that we know enough to know that what we think is real or what we perceive as being real is not only not the whole picture, it's such, such a small part of the picture. And it, and it appears to us in very peculiar ways, informed by our organisms, um, such that uh, while I'm not a solipsist, 
you know, I do think that we have good cause to question anything and everything that we think we know about the real. You know, it's, I, I just, you know, I think reality is whatever it is, I think it's much weirder and much stranger than what we typically think of it as being. Even if we allow it sometimes to be weird and strange, you know, reality is just always the real. It's always itself. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you know, philosophically, I don't know how much access we have to the real. You know, I think for a long time, people have practiced divination for thousands and thousands of years. And this kind of gets into with, again, with the stuff that I was talking about with uh, Macaulay yesterday. You know, we were, we were talking about uh, the relation of spirits to machines and, you know, the idea of trapping a spirit in a robot and, and things like this. And um, I, I think that the language that we have for describing the relationship of something, of an entity that we would call a spirit to, say, a robot, I don't think we have good analytical language for that. I don't think we have good analytical language for spirit, period, like full stop, right? Like, you know, it, it's, it's not uh, a very clearly defined thing that we can measure scientifically. Um, although we can create instruments that sometimes catch a, a, a glimpse or, you know, EVP fluctuations and white noise or whatever, we don't have a good set, really, of engineering principles around these kinds of subjects. And, and there are a lot of reasons for that. And I don't know, to, honestly, to what degree we can create that. But I think... <laughs> It's an interesting space to explore, particularly, and surely we're not the first people to have done it, but I, I think now, today, in 2021, when we know so, I mean, the, the stuff that we know about the world, about the physical world, about science, about the cosmos and the universe that we live in, and, and you know, all these things that we know today are so radically different from the cosmological assumptions underlying so much spiritual and magical work for the preceding centuries. You know, one of the things I love about Pete Carroll is that he incorporated modern scientific ideas into his magical cosmology. In the mid-1970s, Peter J. Carroll and Ray Sherwin claimed that they had discovered a way to alter subatomic interactions in the quantum universe through magical gnosis and divination. They called their esoteric methodology chaos magic, which encompassed advanced physics and occult principles. In response to other occult and esoteric groups like the OTO and Golden Dawn, Carroll and Sherwin formed the Illuminates of Thanateros. As Peter Carroll states, in an interview with Vice in 2008, back in the late 60s, there was an occult revival driven by the republishing of works by people like Aleister Crowley, Eliphas Levi, and Austin Spare. Also, the medieval grimoires and the Golden Dawn books 
became widely available again, and various authors started writing about modern versions of witchcraft. Out of this eclectic stew, a series of new ideas evolved that put more emphasis on techniques than symbolism. Those days were pretty wild and experimental, with fully robed and sky-clad mystics, castles, caves, nights spent in the forest, strangely decorated basements, bizarre sacraments, vanishing by laughter, serious work, and lots of fun. There were great parties, and it was a very creative and ecstatic time. Arguably, Pete is pragmatic to a fault, but um, I've always been a fan of his ideas. I'm even a fan of his his mathematical ideas. I've built computers that you know em- embody his his uh, his chaos magic formulae. Yeah, uh, you know, I again, how accurate of you know how accurate are those? as models of what is actually happening when people do magic, I'm not sure. From the beginning, Carol and Sherwin stated that the results of their magical techniques consisted of synchronicities. In Liber Null and Psychonaut, Carol states, all magical paradigms partake of some form of action at a distance, be it distance in space or time or both. In magic, this is called synchronicity, a mental event, perception, where an act of will occurs at the same time, synchronously, as an event in the material world. Of course, this can always be excused as coincidence, but most magicians would be quite content with being able to arrange coincidences. Essentially, chaos magic consists of a set of techniques for deliberately engineering synchronicities. And Carroll makes it clear in his later works that magical results consist of a series of events going somewhat improbably in the desired direction. And I think this implies a willful reduction in randomness, or rather chaos, and an intentioned effect on reality. That's the measure that we have to go by. Carol actually mentioned at one time, I'm trying to recall... I think it was in one of his audio recordings. In one of his audio recordings, he alluded to the idea that randomness is what keeps us from being slaves to to the status quo. From um, you know, it, it, it. How do I say this? He essentially made a kind of connection between randomness and free will. And I don't, I, I can't quote him on it. It's been a long time since I, I, I've heard that bit. And I'm, I'm probably not paraphrasing it very well. But certainly chaos magic is, is randomness friendly. And not just randomness, but of course, you know, chaos theory and mathematics is the study of dynamic complex systems that aren't really random, but are unpredictable even though they're deterministic and those kinds of systems are also, you know, also have generative properties within the domain of art or within the domain of magic or technomancy or whatever. It may seem counterintuitive, but randomness, true randomness, which implies a pure form of chaos, is a fundamental ingredient 
of divination and magic, and no doubt, a major feature of the phenomena that we've been exploring. Exquisite Corpse, also known as the cut-up technique, was originally conceived in 1925 by André Breton, Marcel Duchamp, and prominent Surrealists. Breton founded the Surrealist movement a year before, in 1924, calling for art that engaged the viewer through dreams and automatic drawing, as well as games and play that could unlock the psychic space of the unconscious human mind. One of the Surrealists' favorite parlor games was Consequences, in which players took turns writing snippets of phrases and pieces of text that eventually formed a surreal story. Phrases eventually were mixed with drawings and sketches as each player took a turn, round and round the table. The Surrealists transformed Consequences into a new game that they called Exquisite Corpse, a name taken from a line that emerged in one of their games. Quote, The Exquisite Corpse Will Drink the New Wine. In the 1950s, painter and writer Brian Geisen developed the exquisite corpse technique even further by slicing up newspapers with a razor blade and putting them together in random arrangements. Geisen later introduced William Burroughs to this cut-up technique, who also began incorporating the method into his written and visual works. Burroughs was a practitioner of chaos magic and member of the Illuminates of Thanateros in the early 1990s. For him, the cut-up technique was inherently magical and could be used for political warfare, scientific research, personal therapy, magical divination, and conjuration. Burroughs stated in his own words, I would say that my most interesting experience with the earlier techniques was the realization that when you make cut-ups, you do not get simply random juxtapositions of words, that they do mean something, and often, these meanings refer to some future event. I've made many cut-ups and then later recognized that the cut-up referred to something that I had read later in a newspaper or a book, or something that happened. Perhaps events are pre-written and pre-recorded, and when you cut word lines, the future leaks out. Genesis Peorge, who studied magic and art under Burroughs, described the technique as a way to identify and short-circuit control life being a stream of cut-ups on every level. They're a means to describe and reveal reality and the multifaceted individual in which, from which, reality is generated. Burroughs also asserted that the word and image locks control our minds and lock us into perceptual patterns that dictate our interactions with our environment and the people around us. The cut-up technique was a way of exposing these word and image controls, the knowledge of which might allow the magician or writer to free oneself and thereby free others who engage with works of art produced by the cut-up technique. Burroughs explained that the cut-up method brings to writers the collage, which has been used by painters for 70 years and used by the moving and still camera. In fact, all street shots from movie or still cameras are by the unpredictable factors of passerby and juxtaposition cut-ups. And photographers will tell you that often their best shots are accidents. Writers will tell you the same. The best writings seem to be done almost by accident 
All writing, in fact, is cut-ups. It's easy in my mind to draw correlations between James Shelby Downer Jr. and Burroughs. Suffice to say that in addition to their individual work on divining the patterns that might belie an underlying nature to reality, both share hyperstitional qualities that warrant investigation and comparison, and both have histories that are arguably fictionalized. What's all this talk about randomness mean? Why is chaos and the cut-up technique worth discussing? Randomness is a measure of the normality of reality. Entropy, randomness, that is sufficiently distributed. Randomness that exists as an ocean of true variability tells us the world is acting the way it should. It sounds odd to say, but the more chaotic the world is, the more indeterminate events are, the less predictable things are, well, we can assume that things are working according to the macro and micro systems in place around us. The pendulum swings from order to chaos and from chaos to order via thermodynamics. And this is the comforting blanket that ensures the universe doesn't fly apart and in turn rip us apart. That's what's so intriguing about the Princeton Egg Project that we mentioned in the last episode. If we can detect decreases in randomness globally or even locally that correspond to certain events and actions, then we have proof of an intentioned and willful effect on reality by an actor or observer or an entity within the system. Morgan Robertson, the author of Futility and Beyond the Spectrum, who we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, had this to say when asked about the source of his stories and why they were seemingly prophetic. Quote, As to the motif of my story, I merely tried to write a good story with no idea of being a prophet. But, as in other stories of mine, and in the work of other and better writers, coming discoveries and events have been anticipated. I do not doubt that it is because all creative workers get into a hypnoid, telepathic, and percipient condition in which, while apparently awake, they are half asleep and tap not only the better informed minds of others, but the subliminal realm of unknown facts. Some, as you know, believe that in this realm there is no such thing as time. And the fact that a long dream can occur in an instant of time gives color to it and partly explains prophecy. When Darian created the ChannelBot software for us to experiment with channeling and scrying, he built true randomness into the procedural process of the underlying algorithm. But this approach was different from how Joshua Madera viewed randomness in magic and divination. I'm thought of um of it i think it's interesting that the way you're thinking of randomness because it's sort of different than the way i think of of it in in what got me into it so when when i wrote channel bot i was thinking that and this is based on some of the Paralabs research that there should be like fluctuations and okay. in, in randomness you know based on sort of interventions that that the entropy around you should decrease because of some sort of 
organized intervention. And so that's kind of my premise with with that. So when we started taking in, so we took in data from a quantum computer in Australia that was that was truly random, and then from atmospheric data, and then we started using uh, hardware random number generators, and in in a lot of those, okay, in, in all of those cases, what we were doing was measuring the sort of uh, entropic fluctuations. So we were just measuring uh, using Shannon entropy calculations whether there was a fluctuation in randomness in those last, you know, thousand bits of data that you got. Um, sure. That was what we were using to sort of use, sort of like scrying in a sense, to use to select words. So the so if there was like a, a, a massive fluctuation in, in, or not massive, but if there was a, a notable fluctuation in Shannon entropy, then um, whatever... Uh, number was repeated most out of a, uh, between 0 and 255 would be that nth number that was selected from a page of the book of the law and so it just kind of cycles through that and applies that procedure um, but uh, so I've always thought of randomness as not I, I totally agree with everything you're saying because it's fascinating to think of it in in the sense of it's sort of the the, fr the sort of fringe chaos that is constantly shaping and not allowing you know the, the universe to be as ordered as it as it might desire to be but um, do you think of, of that as a possibility that if, the, if there was some intervention from some other plane or some other dimension that it could fluctuate the the entropy around around you in, in this world sure yeah it's a it's a i mean <laughs> i don't know how you would really answer that question for certain but it's a it's a fascinating question to ponder and not just to ponder but to do like you had done and create algorithms that explore that space you know i'm i'm also familiar with uh you know the princeton engineering anomalies research group and the stuff that they've done um, I've got one of their hardware random number generators and have used that before uh, in things. And, you know, for the stuff that I'm doing uh, within the context that I'm doing it for, you know, it's just essentially magic, usually, uh, divination or otherwise. You know, I, I'm not usually doing anything really fancy on the math side. I'm in the same way that shuffling cards isn't isn't fancy, right? Anybody can shuffle a deck of cards, and we know very well the mechanics of shuffling cards. And we have like the Fisher Yates algorithm for shuffling cards, of course. Oh man, I've used that so many times. That's uh, that's fascinating that that. <laughs> yeah, I use that in educational software to shuffle decks of cards. Yeah, that's funny. Both as a technomancer or whatever, and as a chaos magician, that randomness seems to be very important. It's there throughout cybernetics. Um, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have evolution without random variation, right? Uh, but it isn't just randomness. You have random variation that is coupled with selection mechanisms. Uh, typically, in the case of evolution, they are inherent in in the environment or in the organism environment relation. You have selection mechanisms there that determine whether a given whether a given mutation or random variable is 
viable or not. To me, I see the same kind of thing in divination. I was just talking with a friend of, of Kia and, and uh, mine yesterday about these same kinds of things, you know. There are different kinds of divination, of course. They're not all based on sortilege. They're not all based on some random assortment of tokens or what have you. But many of them are, of course, tarot cards and I Ching and casting of bones and, and all these kinds of things. And and Ashby, W. Ross Ashby, one of the first cyberneticians who's actually attended one of the later Macy conferences, and he wrote the first textbook on cybernetics, an introduction to cybernetics. He mentions towards the end of that book when he's talking about when he's talking about intelligence as appropriate selection. That is his definition of intelligence, which I think is a very elegant definition of intelligence. Um, the idea that out of a set of alternative or possible outcomes, there is one that is most appropriate and that applies whether you're, you know, you're answering a test on an exam or you're testing your emotional intelligence in a situation. I mean, it applies everywhere, right? But Ashby even mentions when he's talking about selection amplification and intelligence amplification, he talks about randomness. You know, he even mentions like augury and heresy or or divination via sheep entrails as a means of selection amplification. Now, you know, the way that he puts it, he plays it down a bit and he talks about how, you know, after, you know, after the, the leaders would make the most important decisions, they would leave the rest to, you know, these trivial mechanisms of augury or whatever. But Ashby was very hip to randomness. And, you know, uh, during, during the, when he was at the Macy conferences, one of the presentations, one of the talks that he led there was about, uh, he was talking about a mechanical chess player, a hypothetical one. And this, of course, was before the days of Big Blue and uh, and such, but he was he was conjecturing about the possibility of a chess player combine a mechanical chess player combined with a Geiger counter to randomize the chess player's moves to introduce novelty into their gameplay. And again, of course, you can't just have a completely random chess player that that you know they would never win if you if you're just randomly playing. But but that randomness can introduce a novelty. Uh, some a generative element, something different, something unanticipated. Um, all of these things can be introduced then into the system, and uh, and then you have filters and selection processes for for s figuring out, you know, what, again, what is what is viable out of that. And you know, in any given divination, you can you throw ten tarot cards down, and the answer, quote unquote, that comes from the tarot will depend on you know who's reading it what their experience is what the question is the circumstance you know there's all kinds of things that go into the emergence of an appropriate selection from a tarot card reading or any divination the element of of dice and randomness in in games and in role playing games and the way that that is generative in the context of the game, the way that it introduces novelty and and noise in a way that 
that a signal then comes out of of some kind. Yeah, I think that's I think that that's great stuff, and and also you know touches on something that I I think people often tend to forget, which is the play element of so much of this stuff, including magic. You know, it's、um, to some degree, it's all a game that we're playing with ourselves and the world, and maybe the world is playing with us. I mean, there's, you know, I don't have to tell you, there's a huge trickster element to a lot of the stuff happening around Hellier and the Mothman and、uh, and stuff, and and not necessarily a, a benevolent trickster. Maybe more mischievous than than we really want, but I think we also tend. And this is going off into a tangent a bit, but I think we also tend to unintentionally reduce those complex phenomena to simpler entities than they actually are. In the same way that we do with each other,、um, the same way we we do with a lot of systems, we we reduce the complexity in order to make the things simpler for us to. To model and predict and interact with, and you know, I think we do that with things like spirits too. You know, again, whatever. I don't know what a spirit is really. I practice magic partly in order to interact with the quote-unquote spiritual realm, but I, I couldn't tell you exactly what that is. You know, there are lots of different ontologies of spirits out there. Stephanie Quick, who is no stranger to synchronicities, had some insights regarding divination, randomness, and her perspective on seeing and understanding the world as it unfolds around you. I first became interested in divination.、Um, my boyfriend Matt, back in Castro Valley, his father Lloyd was a Taoist. He would record all his dreams. He did tarot.、Uh, he meditated. He's a very introspective person, and he、um, had studied、uh, with、uh, Yogananda down in Texas for a while. Really interesting. The whole family was very interesting. But Lloyd was very inspirational to me. He、uh, did tarot, and he threw the I Ching, and he had done for、uh, many decades. He was more of a, a Taoist, and. He really inspired me because he knew all these various ways that you could perform divination, but he was always of the idea that you would become you. There's like tools to learn about how to read what's unfolding around you, so that when you became、uh, very adept, you could just see, you know, as life was unfolding around you and be able to divine from that angle. And that's always really inspired me, and that's really probably the way that I. Tend to divine things most. I will read some oracle cards. I have the the secret Dakini oracle deck is my my one deck. I'll look at dreams, but sometimes things will just strike me. Yeah, you know, Dan and I have talked about this a lot、um, mm-hmm. because of,、um, and I don't think I've talked about this a lot on interview. I mean, this is going to be part of the second season, but.、Mm-hmm. One of the weird, weirdest synchronicities for us was that Dan was inducted into the Ifa religion,、mm-hmm. oh、um, yeah, and by a guy named、um, Ajala. That's his Baba.、Um, he brought Ajala here 
to Somerset with a number of other Aoife, Yoruban Aoife priests, and they summoned the uh, some of the Aoife gods here in downtown Somerset. Oh, wow. <laughs> In this public ritual, uh, Shango and and Ifa and some of the others, and you know, people thought it was just some African dance, you know, down on the square, but they they, they didn't realize that these guys were literally drawing down these gods to ride them like horses, right? Yeah, it's a possession ritual, right? Yeah, it's a possession ritual. Yeah, so 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 Dan had you know I've known Dan for a number of years, and and so he had told me about. Uh, Ajala, you know, he frequently talks about Aoife, and, and it was just that, just one of those things, it was just part of the story. So, I was, after the show came out, I started getting messages from all kinds of people that were, so, you know, lots of strange messages. So, one of the guys that started contacting me, he started sending me these messages in, in one, in particular, he said, Nathan, don't forget. It's like he was saying blah, 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 all this stuff. And all of a sudden it broke out of me. He said, Nathan, don't forget the hanged man. And he went back into this rant. And then later in the rant, I mean, these were huge, you know, like 20 paragraph long rants on Facebook Messenger. Right. <laughs> and, and so then it would be like, Nathan, the hanged man, you must remember the hanged man. But what I realized when I started reading back over it was that he was talking about the hanged man card mm -hmm. because of its symbolism of St. Peter. And the reason he was talking about St. Peter, you know, St. Peter, and again, I had to like dig into this to find all of this and extrapolate it from what he was saying. But his whole thing, because he even sent me pictures of this, of Caesarea Philippi, and mm -hmm. it's uh, this grotto in Israel, in the Golan Heights, and it was Pan's Grotto, or their temple to Pan. And that is exactly where, in the Bible, Jesus and Samuel are together, and Samuel says that you're basically the Messiah, right? That you're, mm -hmm. you're God on the earth. And, and then so Jesus says, from henceforth, you are Peter, the rock yeah, on the which... Rock. Yeah, on which I'll build the first, you know, church basically, and so it's it's considered that the first Christian church was founded in Payne's Grotto, okay, mm -hmm. and so that's why the guy was sending me this stuff because it's like Jesus conquered Pan, right? Yeah, and then he was he was drawing this connection to the hanged man card because when they crucified Saint Peter. They crucified him upside down, apparently because he did not want to be crucified like his savior. But also, he is the hanged man card, right? So, so I start digging into the history of, you know, and I don't have a, you know, I, I don't practice magic, you know. I mean, I research a lot of this stuff, but, uh, but, I, but I'm not like a, a necessarily a practitioner of magic. So I read this and and I see that. The hanged man card, you know, means all the stuff about the, the 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 divine piercing downward into the to the material world and and all these the symbolism, and it says that that's the only card or the stuff I was researching. Even Wikipedia talks about it. That's the only card in all of the tarot, various versions of the tarot, where the name of the card was officially changed in the African American tarot deck. And that particular card, the hanged man, 
was changed to and renamed the observer <laughs> and so it's an image it's this beautiful image of a man with his hands behind his back with a blindfold on and in the sky above him are all of these floating eyeballs watching him observing him right yeah. and <laughs> and that figure on that card is Aoife right oh, wow. and I was like what it, because it was this whole thing of you know all of our research about second order cybernetics mm-hmm. you know Dan's connection to Aoife mm-hmm. and then and, and then I dug deeper into it and found out later that Aoife, it that divination system is the basis of binary code because Aoife, the Aoife divination system is based on pairs of, of binary pairs in 8-bit, 16-bit, and 256-bit uh, 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 structures. And that literally Leibniz, who invented binary, had your Reuben slaves that taught him the divination system and then he used that to base binary code off of and then claude shannon used that to create modern information theory and um, entropy information entropy and randomness and that's the basis of all modern communication on the internet digital communication is all based on 256 bit encryption that's based on a 10,000 year old Yoruban divination system. Dan Dutton first made me aware of the importance of randomness to divinatory practices like tarot, the I Ching, and Aoife. The latter, Aoife, was an ancient Yoruban religion and divination system, and it so happened that Dan was an initiate. Well, you know, this is something I have thought about a whole lot because if I think about it from the point of view that um, Ajala has about Aoife, he being born into it and also being trained as a as a, as a Babaloa, a, a father of secrets, uh, as that his view of how I got to be there is very different than the view I would have come from coming out of a different culture. <clears throat> so I feel like really I almost have to tell both ways of how I came into Aoife. I mean, from Ajala's point of view, those favored by uh, an Orisa like Shango are part of a family. Of, and in this sense, I think in Yoruba thought, that's almost like your uh, your certain um, quality of being or characteristics of being are um, are looping around and around between an incarnate and a discarnate form. Uh, to use a, a type of terminology that's not. Yoruba but I mean that's going to be a problem all the way through I don't speak Yoruba and, and English is what I've got to deal with here in that sense you're already one of Shango's children you just don't know it yet you haven't discovered it yet you were born with many things many 
choices and some things may be unchosen that have to do with your content, the continuum of your being, which is sometimes incarnate and sometimes disincarnate. Um, it's like there's a gulf between the two things. And in coming from that other world into this world, the enormous storms of that gulf keep you from remembering what you knew on the other side and you spend kind of your lifetime trying to figure out these things and Ifa is really um, as much as it's a religion the, though maybe not a religion in the way English speak, speaking people would think about that it is maybe um, easier to grasp it by thinking of it as a system of thought which can encompass religion as well as other activities giving it a framework in which meaning and categories can do what they need to do to help you improve your character, which is the whole goal of Aoife. It's it's said that your Odu or your your head, claimed by Narisha, is the same as a pathway, and that's something that you chose before you were born. Here, you can't really so much alter that thing, but you can change your character in relation to it. Or in other words, you can change the the meaning of the situation or the consequences that you're in, that you find yourself born into only by self-improvement, by having a better character. Ifa is supposedly the fastest growing religion on the planet at this point in time, and I don't doubt it, because it does sync up with digital thought very, very well. And one of the reasons why it does is interesting and curious too. You know, Nigeria is an interesting place, and I can't wait till I get to go there. When it comes to Shango, it has more uh, it has more lightning strikes than any other place on this planet. Um, they're so numerous that buildings being destroyed by fire and people being killed by lightning's fairly, fairly commonplace thing that takes place there. The other thing that it has that is unusual is it has the highest occurrence of twins, of birth of twins of any place on earth. By a lot. In both of these cases, both of the statistics are, are, are not just a little bump ahead, but radically different. So they're radically more twins, EBA. EBA themselves are a, are a, f- a phenomena of ether because, for instance, if you, you know that it's represented by long lines, broken lines, somewhat like the way that uh, the I Ching works in terms of like how you figure out what the hexagram is in the I Ching. The, um, the Odu of ether are found out you cast the oracle and it's odd or evenness of what of these maneuvers several maneuvers it's not a simple one maneuver but enough to really mix things up with it if you're doing it with cola nuts you're grasp grasping a handful of the nuts and you're if you're unable to grasp all of them, then the numbers that you don't grasp are the ones that you begin to work with and thing but anyways this of course, it's going to lead, just like with the Yi Ching, to, to a primary pair of twins, one of them all broken lines and one of them all continuous lines, the yin and yang of things, you know. And then from that, there's going to be all the patterns that are possible. 
with things. So it is a case where the, the binary system states a pair and then each one of the pairs mirror-like fold out to make all of the other pairs in the set and their relationship to each other and how that logically flows forward it begins the structure of narration that that the oracle uses to communicate what it communicates <laughs> but i'm still convinced i was convinced when i came in contact with Efa that it was at a level of complexity that was truly beyond anything that i'd encountered it, that definitely was an oral an oral tradition for one thing and you know i have huge interest in those things but it just is a, really an amazing feat of harnessing pattern, you know, in order to bring, in order to bring meaning to something. And, uh, you know, from a psychological point of view, the point of view of a person seeking advice, or which is why you come to IFA to seek advice, um, about how to improve your character, you should be, but people are always trying to get more money or to try to figure out how to do something, you know. I'm having trouble right now. Give me some advice. How do I get out of this? Because uh, <laughs> when things are going well, who consults the Oracle, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's only, you only come bumming around the Orisa whenever the, the times get rough on you, right? So it's no wonder that the Orisha and the gods and everything else look at us with a very jaundiced eye, you know? <laughs> <laughs> the Aoife divination system is a set of practices performed by Babalawo to communicate with the Yoruban gods in order to help people in the community solve their problems. Aoife, who is the Yoruban god or Orisha of wisdom in the Yoruban religious community, is called upon to mitigate conflicts and provide answers to problems. In the article, A Comparative Study on Aoife Divination and Computer Science, the authors describe the connection between mathematics and the origins of the Aoife divination system. Quote, The Yoruba gods of western Nigeria once existed as humans and had their way of communicating. Prior to their disappearance, they left the people a means to communicate with them in the outer realm. Over 12,000 years ago, Africans developed Aoife oracle divination corresponding to an eight-dimensional hypercube and to the associated binary two-choice algebra. In a strange way, Aoife can be thought of as an ancient binary computer system which, inexplicably, links probability theory with human existence. Aoife is essentially based on an 8-bit pattern with an 8-unit divination chain with 16 major Odoo or chapters and 256 Odoo in total, all of which sounds eerily familiar. The modern binary number system, the basis for binary code, was invented by Gottfried Leibniz in 1689, and first appears in his article, Explication de l'Arithmetic Binaire. Though most historians attribute Leibniz's invention of binary code to his exposure to the I Ching and Chinese hexagrams, Ron Eglash, a cybernetics professor and former member of the CCRU, notes in his article, Africa and the Origins of Binary Code, that, quote, Leibniz was inspired by the binary-based logic machine of Ramon Lull, which was inspired by the alchemist's divination practice of geomancy. But geomancy is clearly not of European origin. It was first introduced there by Hugo of Santala in the 12th century. 
Spanish and Islamic scholars have been using it in North Africa since at least the 9th century, where it was first documented in written records by the Jewish writer Aaron ben Joseph. These are the same principles which are the basis of modern data and audio storage and transmission. 256-bit encryption is a modern encryption technique that uses a 256-bit key to encrypt and decrypt data and files. It is one of the most secure encryption methods after 128 and 192-bit encryption and is used in most modern encryption algorithms, internet protocols, and technologies, including SSL. Incredibly, the EFA divination system and the Yoruban cosmology is the basis for the machine language that is the backbone of all modern communication on the internet and today is the mediating system for most human interaction. To me, it's fantastical to consider the implications of all of this. And it's strange to think about how Dan Dutton, who composed the Fawn Opera and encountered the archetype of Pan in Elkhorn City, is an initiate of Aoife. And how strange it is that the Hanged Man card and the tarot, an archetype and symbol that we've received odd warnings and messages about, is the only card changed in the African-American tarot, appearing as the observer and represented by the blindfolded Orisha, Aoife. And finally, how strange is it that during the course of the investigation of the Penny Royal Mystery, we ultimately arrived at realizing the correlations between systems and observers, second-order cybernetics, and Claude Shannon's information theory, which finds its origins in ancient binary code of Aoife divination. Even the channel bot that Darian developed is based on Shannon entropy thresholds, which are in turn based on the mathematical groundwork laid by Aoife divination. More and more we're beginning to realize that information is radiation and we should be looking for more loops. What we are discovering is a long line of successive influences all the way back to what we would term pre-technological societies that together indicate an early awareness of features in a larger system with which we are interacting. And the ancient Chinese, the Yorubans, even the originators of the tarot were keenly aware of the interplay between binary patterns, randomness, and observers. And I believe that certain esoteric groups codified these principles into machines, just as Ramon Lull did to construct devices like the Dayton Witch. And by focusing on understanding their underlying principles, we can discover a deeper layer of the mystical movements underpinning so much of the phenomena that we appear to be interacting with. I had originally contacted David Metcalf to discuss his own writings and research regarding Ramon Lull and Lullian circles, combinatronics, and how Lull had influenced the development of binary code and eventually the modern internet. And Lull was a missionary in North Africa. That's actually where he died. Oh, so, shit. Really? Yeah. Well, then that's, you know, that's where I was saying, like, the communication network of these ideas is much bigger than people think like our history has been so stripped you know and this idea that like this idea of separateness of cultures and that but the the cross-cultural correspondences and you know correspondence in the sense of of people talking is massive and it always has been you know i mean they're in viking hordes there's um there's buddha statues you know i mean it's like the these the like the the cultures have always had networks of communication you know, and especially with Africa and Europe, with the trade and everything going on and, you know, 
Yeah, so that totally that, it completely makes sense. I could, and you know, anyone who is is thinking about this stuff, obviously, if you see, you know, someone from Africa doing Efa, and you're a scientist, especially back then, you're going to say, "Hey, what are you doing? Like, what is that? You know, tell me about it." And that was one of the interesting things with the uh, the Raymond Lull stuff. Uh, when I was researching it, was that Lull creating this, you know, this mnemonic device, which he saw as an apocalyptic device, invented the early forms of the mathematics that would go into machine learning, but also created the, the structure of computation, common, combinatronics and that, that would go into the creation of the internet, right? And so one of Lull's passions was he was a missionary, and he thought that if you could bring all the Abrahamic traditions together and find the right language, so so take Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Obviously, there's a lot of cultural build on top of all of those. And if you could get down to their core propositions of what those faiths where they connect to God. And you could get back to that core, which is what he saw his, you know, his memory device as doing, was taking the true language and for each of these things and arranging them in such a way that you would discover the truth that, they, that everyone could agree on, that that moment would be, you know, that would be the apocalypse, right? Like that would be the end of civilization and the beginning of the New Jerusalem. And so he, in his entire career, followed that path. He's one of the first to write sort of novelistically. But the reason that he did that was because there were Jewish and Islamic teaching stories, which were like folk tales. And so he brought that into Christianity. And so he started writing like Christian folk tales that became like the first examples of like European fiction almost. You know, he was, uh, yeah, just a really fascinating mind. And all of this came from a, literally a mountaintop vision where he was, he was doing contemplative work on a mountain and had a flash of, of insight and this encounter with light that led him to see this, this concept, right? But from this guy and from his ideas, and obviously not just him, I mean, this was, this was a conversation that was happening across Europe and, and probably across, you know, the entire global network of, of people communicating, comes the internet, right? And what does the internet do? It connects all of us and it, it keeps rehashing information as we communicate until, you know, we start to come to some sort of agreement. And that hasn't sort of, you know, it hasn't necessarily worked out in the way that it's it's rolled out. It's it's interesting to think that at the core of this technology, which is both unifying and tearing apart the world, are concepts back in history that literally saw this type of device as something that would lead to the apocalypse. And and with the and with the internet tying it back to sort of the shadow of the Manhattan Project. The whole reason the internet was ever invented 
was that you needed a decentralized command and control structure for nuclear holocaust. So if you had all your stuff in a database or if you had everything in one specific spot, right, which is the way that information used to be stored, right, like a library, and if that gets hit by a nuclear bomb and you don't have access to it, then you lose your entire culture, you lose everything, right? And so the internet was invented so that there could be a decentralized command and control structure after a nuclear winter. And so again, like these, this weird interplay of sort of like apocalyptic ideas, you know, and the relationships, I mean, like with von Karman and his relationship to that rabbi, these ideas keep sort of like enfolding as, as this technology goes and as, as culture continues to grow. As we discussed in episode 7, there's a parallel history of encryption and magic. Ramon Lull's Ars Combinatoria and Lullian Circles, based on the earlier principles of the Zarya, informed and influenced the development of cryptographic methodologies used by medieval and modern magicians to decode and unlock the secrets of the universe and access other realms and intelligences. These same principles eventually became the basis for the cryptographical devices used in World War I and World War II, from the Enigma Machine to the Dayton Witch. And even now in the field of the paranormal and occult, works like Alan Greenfield's The Secret Cipher of the UFO Knots use ciphers, formulas, and gematria to decipher and decode the secret communications from the ultra-terrestrials. Even the attempt to understand and decode the tones in Hellier has become a cryptological task. It's become baked into ancient and modern esotericism and the occult. Decoding the hidden, revealing the unseen, widespread knowledge of these secrets might disrupt society or cause those possessing the secret knowledge to lose power. Of course, this is a simplistic and contrived way of looking at it. Investigating the penny roll mystery has definitely led me to the belief that gematria and secret ciphers are just evidence of a system and the structure of that system, that at the heart of what we call reality is information. And that information, for our own safety, is hidden from us, in the same way that files are hidden on our computers that only an admin can access. If we could easily access that information, if someone without knowledge of how those files worked and what their function was in the system as a whole was able to alter, damage, or delete them, then the system would crash. In a consistently fractal way, the deeper layers of the system that we call reality are probably encrypted for our safety to avoid a cosmic system error. But magic and other esoteric practices and methodologies, including cryptography and gematria, allow the practitioner to decode reality and gain access to these hidden admin files and features. And no doubt here, we might also find the natural domain of what appears to us as the phenomena. The UFO phenomena exists. It has been with us throughout history. It is physical in nature, and it remains unexplained in terms of contemporary science. It represents a level of consciousness that we have not yet recognized, and which is able to manipulate dimensions beyond time and space as we understand them. Jacques Vallée, Forbidden Science, Journals 1957 to 1969, published in July 1992. UFOs, like the phenomena, may be encrypted features and files in the system. 
cryptological manifestations of higher consciousness in a deeper reality that we can't decode without private key access, encrypted phantoms in a 256-bit network of hyper-reality. Jacques Vallée, along with assistance from Roy Amara, Robert Johansson, and many others at the Institute of the Future in 1973, created what would one day become the Internet. This original incarnation of the Internet was called the Planning Network, or PLANET. It was the first chat system deployed for the U.S. government's ARPANET and enabled users on the network to log into the system and evaluate the studies and results reported by colleagues this fueled a revolution in the refinement of research science. Planet and ARPANET were the first large-scale packet-switching networks that decentralized and distributed control through the implementation of TCP-IP protocols. And both network technologies became the technical foundations of the modern Internet. Most people are unaware of Jacques Vallée's contribution to the development of the Internet, which makes it all the more interesting that he later became involved in UFO research and published a number of books on the subject. He was often treated as an outcast by both scientists and UFO researchers, the latter harboring heavy criticism because of Valet's skepticism of mainstream UFO ideas, especially that UFOs are simply from another planet. He even once stated that he would be disappointed if UFOs turned out to be nothing more than spaceships. In recent years, Valet has justifiably become concerned that the internet, for which he was partly responsible, might also be the cause for the end of privacy. I can't remember if I heard that you knew uh, Massini. Are you are you familiar? Like, do you think he was behind all the John Teeter stuff as well? Not totally behind it, but yeah, I mean, he like he had a part in some of it. It's interesting with Massini's work because he he was coming at it from you know kind of a transmedia perspective and the idea that digital and communications and kind of like this hyper mediated hyper networked world that we now live in which was starting to sort of bubble up in the late 80s and then get you know it just sort of snowballed out into what we have today how that kind of environment was an amazing opportunity to create a new sort of creative process. Whereas like the novel is uh, relegated to like a book, you could start to write these, you know, what 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 now has become like guerrilla marketing or viral marketing and stuff. But he, he looked at it as like an art form, kind of taking like William S. Burroughs concept of write yourself into the story. And, you know, this kind of like lived art, like the situationists and that, um, but more of like an art focus on it now what he hadn't anticipated and what we now know is <laughs> with this stuff is that once those fictions hit the this kind of hyper communication um they have a tendency to become more real than you expected especially as the creator something like Ang's hat where people you know to this day still question whether it's real or not or whether you know something happened in Ang's hat new jersey you know kind of spun out and the Ang's hat mythos got interwoven with the montauk stuff you know and so these you know the kind of the building of this mythology and then people starting to believe it and live it as if it's real wasn't fully anticipated you know what i found since then, you know, since getting to know him and that, and I've gone deeper into these kind of uh, actually researching this process and researching this, is that, you know, the early tests with 
uh, network computer and network communications. Jacques Vallée, the, you know, probably more famous with most people for his work in ufology, you know, he was working on some of the early ARPANET stuff. And he has a, a paper on, I think it's something like network communication and altered state, or uh, what is it? computer conferencing an altered state of, of communication and what they were finding in the early tests of, of hooking people up on like the really early internet was that a lot of what we see today with the, the building of these mythologies and realities was already apparent just in networking scientists together and researchers and and businesses um, so it's interesting to look back at that early stuff that that particular paper from Valais I think it's from 1975 so you know fairly early on. But it was it was showing, you know, the idea of a temporality where, you know, you can things don't you don't have the, the same kind of time sense. You know, if you send an email, you might respond in like three days. You could respond immediately. You know, it could be a month. Uh, well, at the same time, like you could then talk to the person over Skype or Zoom or, or you know, Facebook or something. So there's these weird ways that time crosses and media doesn't have the same immediacy or, you know, news. Right. Like it used to be where you could only catch it on the hour, you know, in that minute when it was on the radio, or if you had a newspaper, it would be, you know, you could see it a little bit, take more time with it or whatever. But now we can get news from wherever, whenever. And that, that definitely changes the way people interact with it. God damn it. That's, that's so, I didn't know that about ballet, man. That's yeah, so that's, that's kind of like the hidden... Um, like my favorite uh, valet is the is the like computer scientist theorist valet, you know, and that and that really informs his his concept of what the UFO phenomena and what kind of like the anomalistic phenomena is heavily heavily influenced by his work with computer networking and that kind of stuff. In Peter Lavenda's Sinister Forces trilogy, he describes the influence of esotericism and magic on American history and the development of the American state through the meddling and mixing of occult forces. Most importantly, Lavenda argues that the egregore of fascism is the most dangerous and pressing threat to our collective future and the existence of humanity. We've discussed egregores and tulpas frequently in the course of the first and second seasons of Pennyroyal, thought forms that emerge from the shaping of belief and intention. And even if you don't believe in the metaphysical concept of egregores, let me assure you that their digital counterparts are very, very real. The egregore of fascism exists, as does the egregore of everything that has managed to capture the attention of every human being that lives in our surveyed online world. And companies like Facebook and Twitter are very aware of their existence. These companies watch these digital egregores emerge from seas of data born from millions of human minds alive and breathing like giant murmurations. In looking at all of this, I said to Darian, I was like, man, I'm telling you that at Facebook, at Instagram, at Twitter, there is a room where people work and those people are not allowed to talk to anybody else. 
And in that room, they are able to see these patterns, right? In the in the data mining. Because there there are these financial algorithms that exist in the wild. And they they were created by other trading algorithms, high-speed trading algorithms. And so they're out there and they're programmed to respond to each other, to fake each other out. And then occasionally people that are watching the markets will see patterns and they, they name them like the knife or whatever they and whatever it is. And they know when that pattern emerges in the financial data and the market data, that it's the execution of the protocol of a particular algorithm that exists in the system. And it's not under anyone's control. It's referred to being, you know, in the wild. And uh, I mean, it's on a servers, multiple servers, but it's in these trading platforms and they're autonomous. Now, I'm not saying they have any intelligence, but they, they're looking for stimuli that caused them to execute what they were programmed to execute, right? And to, to cause these effects. In a way, it's like they're, if you think of magical spells, as algorithms. They're like spells that are in the wild and they're looking for the right components to, to, to execute what they were programmed to, to the enchantment they were supposed to create, right? The, the effect. We know those things exist and they have these patterns, these definable patterns. So there are people in rooms at these giant companies seeing all this data. And when people are tweeting about Beyonce, right? Beyonce forms a pattern in this massive sea of data that they're able to say that's Beyonce, that millions of people tweeting and posting and talking about Beyonce, it forms a structure in the data that is identifiable as her. And then there's another form that's identifiable as Jay-Z or fascism or Jesus or whatever these things are, right? And those things are literal egregores in the information systems that are emergent shapes. And those entities, those digital egregores, interact with each other. And so these millions of people saying these things that form, you know, Beyonce interact with another egregore. And at that top level of data, at this massive amount, they interact with each other and then send signals back down through the systems to the lower level people tweeting these things in these feedback loops where these massive digital egregores are having an effect on humanity. Right. And they're, they're observing this in these rooms, but they cannot talk about it because they don't understand what these things are. Right. right? We also have to ask the question, are people experiencing less alien contact than they did in the past because aliens don't need to study us individually any longer? They can instead just study the digital patterns that we create through our interactions on the internet and social media. Was there a steady decline in alien contact that correlated with the increase in human digital networks and the transition into a global surveillance society. Why spy on us when we're spying on ourselves? Dara Mason and I talked at length about digital egregores and the demiurgic intelligences that were constructed from our harvested 
social media. My area of difficulty, an area of challenge is when we talk about, you know, egregore, tulpa or spirit, what does, what's the nature of a digital egregore? What's the nature of a digital tulpa as opposed to one from the natural world, the, the, the spirit of a river, you know, or the spirit of, of, of wildness? What's the difference? you know, uh, in nature and relationship with us. Is AI indicative of that nature, of, of how that intelligence might perceive us? You know, because if that's the case, the indications aren't very good to start with. You know, um, we've seen AI experiments go pretty wrong. We've also seen some startling things, some really startling things. You've got kind of like I said, the, the Google AlphaGo Zero experiments, where... I, th- I think the, I think it's a, it's a, it's it's in a game called Go. I think that's what the name of the game is, right? So it's it's like all these little kind of white and black discs. There's multiple variations of it. I think it's an it's an ancient kind of um, Asian game, hugely complex. And the first version of that AlphaGo was developed by the uh, it's, it's a kind of a, a deep learning branch of Google. They played five games against the then world champion, I think, back in 2016. And Alpha AlphaGo was basically inputted with all this strategy and all this learning so a huge amount of machine you know machine learning here you go vast amount of information so you've got all this stuff you can index and play back for these scenarios and it won a couple of matches right did well um but beat the beat the world champ so then they decided to push it further they'll go right let's start at zero no input no given input into the software so the intelligence starts to play itself and because of this like you know almost infinite capacity you can play like some like several million games in like fuck all time right so can you basically accumulate like multiple lifetimes worth of knowledge in this and what they started to notice is a pattern of strategies emerging that had never existed before right so a pattern of strategies in this game that it had taken several lifetimes worth of play which this this ai AlphaGo zero achieved in a day that's the potency of this. That's the godlike quality of this that we really can't get our heads around. Where we can't conceptualize the capability, and that that's that's remarkable. So I'll get to my point. I'm, I'm almost there. Which is so it developed strategies that human beings had never seen before. Totally new strategies. That, but more importantly, strategies human beings weren't capable of. Like some of our the greatest minds were incapable of creating these strategies. AlphaGo Zero does it in a day. Now you apply that level of capability to any problem, to any field, and you're going to get startling results. And that's the key of like, well, strategy, the humans weren't capable of, it came up for it in, in a day. Uh, and that's that's a remarkable division. Like it's a, that's a chasm of division that we, we, we cannot conceive the size of that division. It's huge. Now you relay that to magical capability, then the potential is massive. And who's to say that it doesn't exist? Does 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 Facebook have an egregore? What I think that um, data tends to do, or algorithms tend to do, is they don't necessarily create. They tend to replicate. They tend to react rather than act. Right? There, that's how they're coded but it's quite in their nature and that now making a massive philosophical leap 
that reminds me of the idea of kind of you getting into kind of Gnosticism and Demiurge type things, right? It's a copy of reality. I think that's quite a different thing. Now, I think we're within human beings um, and organic living things and organic intelligence. We have a divine spark where we got the capability to create. You know, we can be inspired. Whatever that is, I don't know. I've spent a lot of time, you know, trying to postulate around kind of the idea of like we have this kind of relationship with fairies, with jinn, where there's an inspirational thing happening, right? Where we, we can have these gifts kind of exponentially uh, develop from weird uh, encounters, as your, your, your friend Dan has had. And um, I think that's the difference. I think creativity is hugely important in that regard. I also think that, and going back to my point around kind of the resurgence of fairy and people having these experiences and kind of that the idea of perceptions of, of the other and our kind of ability to perceive things starting to develop where our intellect has held sway over 500 years and maybe beyond that. So that's what I postulate might be the case. Where I think there's a danger in digital is that I think it can shut down our sensitivity because it's a massive distraction, you know. And I think that's the danger of it, you know. I mean, like, and I, I and I hope that doesn't come across as me being hypocritical because, like, you know, I do, I, I love playing with, with digital stuff. That that's it's facilitated a huge amount of stuff for me. Where I think there's dangers in is primarily social media you know primarily social media it's engineered to garner a response right you've got ux or i mean the whole architecture of the user experience designed to trigger a reaction you know be that one of like i want likes for my image you know i want to put up a thinly veiled needy comment to garner retention uh, or whatever it is, but that triggers the reaction. That triggers and that triggers an, an emotional and a, and a biochemical response. You know, it's addictive. We we all know that. You know, we've all seen ourselves just. I don't even know why I'm looking at, but I've been scrolling this for 15 fucking minutes. You know, <laughs> it's like I, I don't even know what I've seen, right? You know, so we we we've all experienced that, and without getting into any kind of esotericism around that, just think of it as a distraction. You know, what am I gaining from being here? And I think that that's the personal stewardship, you know, and the personal discernment of being just because a platform exists doesn't mean you have to fucking join it. Right. There's a big thing with like, you know, FOMO is like I, I, I'm missing out by not being on, on 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 Snapchat or whatever the fuck it is. You know, I mean, I'm not missing out on TikTok. I'm too old, you know, and, um, you know, most of it just annoys me instantaneously because of that generational gap. I'm insulated by my by my elder lemon years from TikTok. <laughs> you know, God bless those per millennials. They they just can't get away from it. The Zoomers drive them nuts. But but I think it's I think it's that there's that bit of like, are you being played? And I think that's an important reflection. Technology is fucking brilliant. It's done some amazing shit. It's done some remarkably shit stuff too right it's it's in it's in the it's in you know it's in that the intention it's built with what we do have is exactly as you described we've gotten to the scale with these platforms that 
they're creating fucking demiurgic intelligences, right? <laughs> because they're that vast, you know? So that that's that's a consideration we have to have. You know, do I want to be part of that? And it's like, well, it's very hard not to be, you know? But there are certain things that you really don't have to partake in, that don't really serve you, and that you'd be much better off, you know, out in your garden, fucking chilling out, fooling about with some plants. Like, um, you know, that will serve you in a better way, in my opinion. <laughs> Darian and I shared some of our research regarding algorithmic magic with occultist and magician Matthew Bird to get his opinion on how technology could be used to explore new magical spaces and supercharge magical spells through machine learning. We were particularly interested in Matthew's opinions regarding digital magical experiments because of his involvement in the modern pagan movement and the large pagan community here in the Big South Fork and Daniel Boone National Forest. One of the things that Darian and I have been, uh, we, we started talking about this a couple years ago or, or at least a year ago, just because we were doing all this data mining for these clients and, and he was building these uh, sort of, art of, you know, not artificial intelligence, but definitely these systems that, that used algorithmic, you know, programming it was like, could we take a magical ritual and could we do algorithmic rituals like ceremonial magic? Because really you're repeating things over and over again, right? So that there's a, right. a compounding effect. So it's like, if you were to program a magical ritual into an AI-based data mining system that you know had these iterations that were algorithmically based, could you run a ritual a million times a second and could you compound a magical effect using this sort of algorithmic ritualistic you know uh, program it it's frightening to think about it the what i thought of just now was you guys might remember that when Mortal Kombat came out and you had to do the combos and such but then they used to make the controllers that you could program the combos in and you just had to push a button. If we go that route to where we can simplify rituals to go in a loop like that, and I, I don't even want to think about what could come from that. I mean, think of the power that you could have magically if you were to use something like that, you know? Here's, here's something I'm going to present to you that I've been thinking about lately. And this actually, I can, I can thank you for it um, by talking about the Hopewell. The Hopewell, they have up in Ohio, one of the mounds is called the Octagon. And the mound is believed to represent the Spider Woman. It actually counts the lunar alignments and Grandmother Spider was a moon goddess as well. You had said the other day when we were talking about the Great Warrior Way of whether there was a branch of it that went through um, to where Standing Stone was. And I've shown you that, that map where we were talking about the Pilot Mountain Wheel. You can think of it as a wheel, but you can also think of these things as a web. And through ley lines, um, through um, vortexes, um, through all of this, it's like strands of a web. Everything that you're looking into with Penny Royal is all connected to this area. Everything is just a little piece of a web 
away from the main part. And even with the internet, it's the World Wide Web. What became part of each other, we've now, we're all connected. I can go online and I can find somebody who is looking into the same things I'm looking at. And it brought us together tonight. Another odd layer of the Penny Roll mystery that re-emphasizes the connection to technology is that Somerset and Pulaski County are the starting point, the beginning of the corridor that has been designated both nationally and regionally as Silicon Holler. It's all because of Senator Hal Rogers, who you may remember from episode one of this season. Hal Rogers was the mastermind behind I-66, invoking the nostalgia and myth of America's mother road, Route 66, to convince Kentucky and the federal government to fork over millions of dollars for a road to nowhere. In 2013, then-Governor Bashir and Hal Rogers launched the SOAR initiative in response to the collapse of the coal mining industry and record unemployment and poverty in eastern Kentucky. Jared, thank you very much for the nice uh, introduction. Governor, good always to be with you and all of you in the room. We have uh, uh, the leadership of the state legislature here with us, of course, and the leadership of uh, SOAR and lots of other people. And I'm thrilled to be here on this, what I think is one of the most historic days that Eastern Kentucky will have seen. I readily predict that this new interstate highway will open us up to greater growth than the interstate highway system has. Kentucky will go from one of the least wired states in the union to one of the top rated when this project is completed. And so I'm proud to be a part of it. I'm proud that we have uh, come to this point to where we can say our future is upon us. I remember going to uh, Frankfurt two years ago, Governor, uh, this month, when we had our first meeting on this uh, idea that the center at Somerset had been fooling around with for oh, a year and a half. And so I went there looking for money, wouldn't you know, <laughs> like all of you have. Uh, but we had 20 million from feds and we needed another 10 million at the same to get us started in East Kentucky. And so I went there with that in mind. And uh, Speaker Stambol and uh, State Senate President Robert jumped on the idea. They loved it. And the governor said, well, you know, Rogers, I'd like, I'd like to take this statewide, not just East Kentucky. And I said, Governor, if you've got the money, I've got the time. <laughs> so here we go. A fiber optic hub was established in Pulaski County at the Center for Rural Development that stretched broadband lines all the way east to Pikeville. Along this fiber corridor, Kentucky began to infuse money and tax incentives to attract big tech companies. And the companies came. The government came. Golden contracts signed and executed by Hal Rogers. Kentucky also has some of the cheapest electricity in North America. That cheap electricity, in conjunction with the large amount of data-carrying fiber, 
laid between Somerset and Pikeville, has caused what used to be called coal country to become home to 20% of the crypto hash rate in America. That's right, Kentucky has become one of the leaders in America for cryptocurrency mining and is responsible for 20% of the total hash rate in the U.S. Empty coal mines with naturally cooled temperatures now house massive crypto mining rigs. What started as Silicon Holler is quickly transforming into Crypto Holler. 30 years ago, it was already at the center of a technological controversy with Chuck Hayes, the fifth column, and a Cray supercomputer in the back of a semi driving the back roads of Pulaski County and the Penny Royal. Chuck Hayes and Jay Orland Gravy would have never believed it at the time that this place would become a node in the U.S. data fiber network and attract arrays of computers and machines that dwarfed the processing power of the Cray supercomputer that they built in the same shadowy hollers. Where all of this has been leading us, it seems to me, is an understanding of time, or more specifically, timing and place. And really in technical terms, time and space. All these things that have happened and continue to happen intimately involve time and space and time and place. As Sun Ra so eloquently says in his film of the same name, space is the place. All of this would have had to have been set in motion in the 1970s or even earlier. For it to play out the way that it has, 1973, 1975, 1977, and 1979 are big years. And not just here in Kentucky on the Penny Royal. Those were big years for the U.S. politically and socially. Just look at 1973. The Vietnam War was drawing to a close with no victory in sight. Vice President Spiro Agnew resigned in disgrace and incidentally bought a defunct coal mine in Pulaski County, Kentucky, of all places. President Richard Nixon was embroiled in the Watergate scandal, soon to face charges of impeachment. Gas prices soared as a war raged between Egypt and Israel. The U.S. and Soviet Union went on DEFCON 3 alert for the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And in the midst of all this turmoil, the world was experiencing the largest UFO flap in modern history. Aliens descended on the American South as well, with waves of hundreds of UFO sightings in Kentucky and Tennessee in the fall of 1973. During this same period in 1973, the scandal at Oakwood erupted. A witch cult was allegedly burning symbols into the backs of residents in the tunnels beneath the newly constructed experimental mental health facility. And a group of savants in an isolated resident cottage at this facility were suddenly inhabited by alien intelligences concerned with saving humanity. Later that decade, Dan Dutton would encounter these intelligences. I've always wondered if these intelligences could be the origin of the chain of events that led to the events happening now, or were they simply drawn here to the Penny Royal, to Somerset and Pulaski County, by whatever force or structure that also drew Alexander Guterma, the Bait Cabal, Aleister Crowley, Nima, James Shelby Downard, Chuck Hayes, J. Orland Graby, and so many more magical and historical figures, all drawn to this place. Were these alien intelligences part of the tapestry, variables in the algorithm, 
iterations in the machine? Were they inevitabilities? And was all of this inevitable? Was it all in the timing? One of my favorite playwrights is David Ives. And of all his works, I was most taken by his collection of short plays staged in one evening called All in the Timing. Ives geniusly uses repetition of actions and words to build complex moments. These repetitions and the timing of the repetitions stack together and a larger pattern and context emerges. Often the real narrative only appears through the timing of the repeating moments. And in the same way, repetition is fundamental to synchronicities. The recurring moment, the rehappening, forms the structure of the coincidence. The previously encountered is referenced, and the meaning derived from the repetitive, self-referential, and looping nature of synchronicities. It's the wheel spinning in a particular moment recognized as coming back around, around and around and around. The more you see it, the more you interact with it, the stronger the synchronicity. It's all in the timing and not necessarily linear causal time. There's specific timing to synchronicities and meaningful moments. There's specific timing to this mystery and there's specific timing the phenomena. Often when we're talking about time travel or even time magic, we're looking at it from the perspective of linear causality. But temporal philosopher Rao and Elizabeth Cabrales explained to us that atemporality and nonlinear causality are valid considerations when thinking about time travel and synchronicities. There's so many different ways to approach atemporal rhizomatics um, in the reject religion roundtable talking about hellier i i bring up wikipedia because i think wikipedia is a good way for people to grasp hyperlinked uh decentralized networks uh so you have a page about 1945 and on that page there are 12 different links and some of them go to 2010 some of them go to 1700 some of them don't go to times they go to people uh some of them go to ideas and all of those points come out of that one point but all of those points that come out of it go to different things in the same way. And then you get consistencies across them as well. Some things link to the same things, some things don't link back to the things they were linked from. And the the kicker is that this is a constantly modified developmental hub. So some of these changes disappear, some of them get repeated, but it's developing through time as time outside of time. Uh, so with atemporal rhizomatics, it's kind of the same thing. Like someone does something and it creates this non-linear reaction that opens up a whole bunch of hyperlinks in other instances. Kenneth Grant figures out the Lovecraft thing, but there's Lovecraft in Parsons also. He did what's called the Black Pilgrimage and 
he references all sorts of super Lovecraftian kind of locations and ideas that he engaged during this event. No one really noticed it. He didn't really even talk about it as a Lovecraftian thing, but those things hyperlink into this Lovecraft current and it, it kind of starts to spread. And eventually you get enough spiromatic consistencies that a linear system comes out of it as a very real thing that's super locatable on our perspective as a linear time network. But it works outside of the linear time network to establish it or reestablish it. We had dozens and dozens of strange a-causal synchronicities prop up in the midst of production in season two. One of my favorites involved the time machines created by expatriate American experimentalist composer Conlon Nancaro. His music, almost all written for player piano, is the most rhythmically complex ever composed, couched in intricate contrapuntal systems using up to 12 different tempos at the same time. Composed in almost complete isolation in the 1940s and 1950s, I was sitting in Dan Dutton's kitchen on his Dandelion farm talking about synchronicities and time machines when he asked me if I had ever heard of Conlon Nancaro. Colin Nancaro, you know, I ran into Nancaro's music um, because I was convinced of my modernity. Nancaro was such a uh, fiercely individualistic person that the only other real person in American music history, anyway, that compares with him is Harry Parch, who is um, also out there on an extremely other tangent, you know, a uh, type of sound world that was very different. But, you know, Nancaro's concept of of how to handle one of the most basic aspects of of music of course is its duration you know that it has duration and that during this duration there's pulse or rhythm there's uh, cadence or melody and there's consonants and dissonance or harmony you know these are the three these are the three aspects of music and uh, Nancaro's adventure particularly focuses on time because once he had the idea, he wasn't alone. I think he he got the idea of the player piano from Henry Cowell, another one of the of the 20th century avant-garde composers, or at least they discussed it. And uh, but it was some time before he could both get the player pianos, but more importantly, that he could get a machine that would punch the holes. It had to be manually operated, but you still had to have a machine to punch it. And he had to have a machine built to punch it. The co- one of the companies that made piano roll music had one of these machines to do the the first offs, and then the the they could be duplicated. You know, the rolls could be duplicated in mass then, but the first roll had to be done by hand. And I think early on it was done even by... Uh, putting ink on pads on the the piano and so that there would be 
ink marks made on the roll as it passed through, and then you go through and punch out each one of the marks individually. So here's the machine concept that it works on. You have a roll, you know, this, this scroll of paper, which is rolling past, and it's rolling past at a regular pace. And this makes it possible if you play on the thing, those things are gonna be grouped closer together or further apart according to how fast the roll is turning. There'll be more distance if it's going fast and less distance if it's going slow. And that does lead to the idea of slowing time and speeding time up. Or, you know, in score writing, we say the accelerando. Uh, it means it's getting faster, right? But in on the player piano roll, it means that the spots are getting closer together. So it really is a sort of a tangible three-dimensional representation of the passage of time. I think that Nancaro's genius here of manipulating time is that he definitely understood very much that as beings, we sense time by rhythms because our body has rhythms. We sense it through our body's rhythms. Our sensibility of time musically speaking, has to do with our heartbeat and our, our, our pulse, our breathing. You know, all of these things have a, a, an in and out to them, an up and a down to them. And they have, a, and plus in our lives, we're, our lives are structured with period, periodicity, you know, in the sense that um, the sun comes up, <laughs> the, it is light. The sun goes down, it is dark. The sun comes up, it's light. The sun goes down, it's dark light, dark, light, dark, light, dark, and then the seasons. Then there are all of our daily rituals like brushing teeth, and which is a rhythmic activity itself. This leads to, you know, the study of, of Gaston Bachelard talked about it quite a bit, but other people did of eurythmy, you know, which was uh, something that um, Nijinsky uh, became uh, involved in is very much as well. And it was an idea of a system of getting the rhythms of the body um, to have a, a meaningful, tangible form. But Nankaro saw past that to the possibility of the machine being able to do things the human could never do. Note, more notes played faster, you know. It's no problem for every single note on the piano to be played by a piano roll versus with two hands. It's extremely difficult to pull it off. Even if you lay your arms and elbows across on it, you still have a hard time hitting all 88 keys much less having things going way down here and way up here and also things going in the middle, but there's no limit as long as you're willing to spend the time punching the patterns in. Nan Caro's earliest compositions for human performers, written in the early 1930s and 1940s, were met with almost unanimous frustration. The rhythmic and temporal relationships involved were far too complex for humans of the time to deal with, both mentally and physically. Although the use of multiple tempos is the central defining characteristic of much of his work, Nancaro explored a vast range of techniques and ideas. Each piece is a self-contained universe where the laws of time are redefined. After dinner, I had rushed home for an interview with researcher and writer Stephanie Quick and brought up the discussion I'd had with Dan regarding Nancaro. It turned out that Stephanie had actually met Dan online because of a question she'd posted regarding one of Nancaro's compositions called Tango. 
The very next day, I discovered during my interview with David Metcalf that Stephanie had actually introduced him to Nan Caro. And neither Dan nor Stephanie knew that I'd be talking to David the following day, or that in a seemingly synchronistic way, Nan Caro would make another appearance in my conversation with David. It's interesting how, like we were talking about this last night at dinner, how it's hard to find a way because of the linguistic constraints to reference or talk about in a, you know, in a phenomenological way, the, how, how these things form structures, you know what I'm saying? Like in a, in a weird way, we are talking about, you know, like a network theory. And I was talking to Stephanie quick last night. And, uh, have you talked to her before? Do you know Stephanie? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I know Stephanie very well. Yeah. So, so we were talking about this and she knew Dan in a totally different way. And she found Dan through, um, Conlon, uh, Nancaro's, she, you know, she was, she had a personal connection to, you know, who Conlon, uh, Nancaro is the, the artist that created this player piano. And, oh, okay. and he like, they keep explaining it though. Cause, um, I think she was, t- I think I know it cause she mentioned it. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so like he, he took a player piano, he had read about these like polymorphic musical tones, but they're almost impossible to play by a human being. And so he took a player piano, which can play anything and, and, and can be, you know, simulate multiple people. And he hacked it in like the 1950s, you know, 1960s. And he built a special room and that instrument was only ever played in that room. And he didn't tell anyone about it for 30 years. Right. And um, and so it's, this, it's, it's a it's a fascinating thing in terms of art and time because he, he was trying to construct what he termed. Uh, cathedrals of time uh, because the the pieces that he created distorted time and the perception of time by the listener it's a really fascinating piece of art but the strange thing is that Stephanie was trying to find who that was right she couldn't figure out the name of the person and was looking online and and found Dan and Dan and she were talking about it and she remembered tango, right? That, that that tango was one of the pieces that he had that he had done with the player piano, but she couldn't find it anywhere. And then she met Dan online. They chatted, and then Dan's the one that that gave her the link to the tango piece. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, right. But last night at eight o'clock, Dan started. It just suddenly popped up in the conversation, and he was like, uh, "Have you heard, have you listened to Conlon Nankaro? Because I was talking about building a virtual room that an instrument was in, right? That that and it could only be played in that room, okay? Right. And, and so, uh, but if you weren't in that room, the instrument in that virtual space, if you weren't in there, it would not appear in any other virtual room or in real life." And that's when he said, have you heard of this guy? And I was like, no. So he pulls it up. Well, two hours later, I'm talking to uh, Stephanie, interviewing her for a couple of hours. And she brings up, <laughs> brings that up, you know? Yeah, right. I was, I was like, it's so strange because none of us were prompted to have that conversation. It seems yeah. so. Well, know. I mean, 
interesting too because she'd actually reached out to me and asked me if I knew who this guy was and I had no idea so that's how I knew that's how I was familiar with this this player piano concept was because Stephanie had asked me about it and I was like no I don't I don't know who that is so that's awesome that that like has now interwoven through all of these these interactions and you know just quickly with the valet piece uh you should check it out because that's those kind of synchronicities were exactly what they were finding even in the early networking experiments with uh, computer conferencing and that. Conlon Nancaro and his music is a way, I think, of understanding part of this phenomena. Each of his pieces of music is a self-contained universe where the laws of time are redefined. Each piece of music has its own rules and operates within those rules to sustain the system. And I think the phenomena, as we've all been calling it, isn't a thing. It's a system that we've created through observing the act of creation itself. And it all involves timing. Our friend and magician, Marco Visconti, who we've repeatedly engaged to help us understand magic and ritual, explained the relationship between time and magic to us and whether time travel was magically possible. In order for this to have happened, it must have started in 1975, right? Or it had to have started at this time, you know? Because it's like, otherwise, how could all of these things like dominoes have fallen into place, right? But maybe that's the wrong way to think about it. You know, that's that's what I've been questioning myself. Like, you know, I keep trying to think about these things that are happening in a linear way. This must have happened before this happened, but, but there's nothing to say that that is the way that it has to be. And so I, I would love to hear, you know, we've talked about this before, but just your opinions on the idea of time match. I mean, do you think do you believe in time magic? Do you believe in time travel in a sense? Um, I do believe in time travel, but I think that the way I perceive time, the way I believe in time travel, it's different than what you know what people, what, what the average person would would believe. Because um, I don't, I don't believe, and I have no evidence that we can move in time in our physical body, okay? Our physical bodies are strictly tied to the space to, that we are in. And in fact, if you think about it, we're always tied to the same moment in time and space. We only live in an internal present. Like, you know, we started the discussion like one, one hour ago, but where, where, where is that point, right? Where is it? Like, we know it existed, but where is it? We don't see it anymore. As I say it is, we move across time and space, but we're always in the moment. We're always in the moment of the eternal, what's called the eternal now, okay? What happens through magical initiation and through magical workings and operation is that you can, and I guess this is also, go back to Giordano Bruno, the ability of, you know, start making all these crazy computations into your, into your memory palace in order to almost like unlock the uh, the 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 binds that 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 keep you into the eternal now at that point it's almost like you you project yourself upwards and you see time and space not so much as a like a like as a line where you're always stuck in a point 
but more as a tapestry. And this tapestry extends in every day, in every way, in every, in, in, it's, it's, it goes up and down, it goes forward and backward. But the reality there is that from that vantage point, from when you, when you achieve that point of, of, of perspective, right, then you can be in it, you can plunge yourself back in wherever you want. You can plunge yourself in the past, in the future. You can plunge yourself in different moments of the present. And that's where the idea possibly of, you know, multiple realities comes from, or alternative realities come from. All of this exists at the same time, you know? And the fact all of this exists, it's outside time entirely, okay? This is a, this is something that can be done, you know, when, when we engage with, you know, what's called time magic in the Bertio system, or, you know, the magic of the worst spider, and, you know, weaving the web of, you know, of time and space. What you really do is that, in fact, you try, you, you, you try to push your consciousness up, you know, outside of the confines of your body, of the confines of, of your, of your identity, in fact, that's what it calls the word spider, right? The idea of changing into something else. And by changing into something else, you can see the web, you can see the, the, you know, the tapestry, and you can plunge yourself wherever you want. You can connect yourself back in. It, the, this can, it's almost like that is the final time palace. Uh, sorry, uh, memory palace. That is the 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 the, the, the archetypical memory palace. Is the one that en- encompasses all that is and it was and it, and it will be. To just to answer your question, do I believe in time travel? Yes, I do. Um, it's not what people make it do. It's really it's it's not about. And I, be, I, I might be proven wrong, you know, we might come to a moment where there is, you know, a time travel machine arrives and, uh, you know, either Back to the Future or, you know, Avenger Endgame or whatever that is. I don't think that physical time travel is possible. However, spiritual or, or psychic time travel, it's it's possible, it's relatively easy to achieve. There are ways to then deepen that kind of experience where you have more and more control. It's relatively simple, you know, to go to move across time timescapes and see things and report back. It's more complicated to actually fully move your consciousness into these various timescapes and act as opposed to you know, self being passive into them, becoming active into them. And it's and then eventually something that is, I mean, it's theoretic, ter- theoretically possible if you engage with these ideas, is that then you can actually, you know, at some point really move yourself somewhere entirely. You know, this is uh, it's considered like avataric magic, like creative, and, and then that means like, you know, imagine, imagine that if you can have complete control of this timescape, of this tapestry, yet at some point you decide that another timeline it's better suited for you well all you if you if ideally what you can do is that you you move your consciousness and then you plunge your consciousness back into that what happens to your previous body well i mean it's there it's part it's still there it's just that that your your consciousness your higher self in this case i'm really talking about you know uh, the, what's called like the Holy Guardian Angel, so you should have a union with the Holy Guardian Angel. You've just moved into another timeline. This is highly, um, I mean, you, you won't find books on this. You won't find, you will find maybe ravings of magicians, uh, like pr- like private diaries. The Beit Cabal, the Cincinnati Journal of Magic, Nema, Jirus, they were working on that. I think Kenneth Grant was working on that. Michael Bertillo has been working on that. 
other people have been working. I mean, Giordano Bruno, I think he was working on that as well. You know, that's that that's why he was seeing, you know, the the multi the multi complex of cosmos because he, he understood that this was a possibility. But like 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 if if you were asking like, okay, well, what's what's a book on this? There's no books on this. This is really where magic becomes something that really transcends the ability to talk about it. I mean, everything we say we we say about it so far, it's an approximation. It's not the real deal. Uh, it's not how it is. The magic you speak about, it's not the real magic. It's like the Zen you can talk about, it's not the real Zen. It's the Tao you can speak about, it's not the real Tao. That's it, because we really move into deeply mystical understandings of, of this. When you look at phenomena, uh, at the phenomena, and when you think about like, and you try to to trace a series of cause and effect, I don't think you're doing something wrong because the reality there is that that's where you start. Like you start looking at the cause and effect and you realize that the cause and effect exists and it exists in ways that it seems impossible, right? Like that's when, oh, this is a crazy synchronicity. But then you realize that everything is a crazy synchronicity. Like everything can be connected to everything else because everything exists at the same time so this is a very difficult way of understanding because this kind of shatters our need to order the universe our need to think there is an order there is and that order is chaos that is that is the big thing the re the ontological nature of order it's it's antinomian uh, sorry it's all antithesis it's chaos now we can go into a bit more discussions as to why you reduce all of this into these polarities you know of order and chaos and the event the reality there is that you go even further down when you go even deeper and you realize that all even those two polarities are none in fact but you know that's that's not confused a little bit further <laughs> let's let's take a step back uh it makes me think of david lynch i mean obviously it's it's hard not to draw twin yeah. peaks you know he hits something <laughs> it, it's just another reverberation it's another refraction of absolutely all, right and i mean I, I think i told you like i wouldn't be here if it wasn't twin peaks i discovered twin peaks i i was 12 and I should not have watched it, but for, for the weirder reason, Twin Peaks was prime show success in Italy in 1990. Like, nothing coming before, nothing, like, it, was, it was not possible, right? And I was 12 and I watched, I was like, oh, this is very interesting. Imagine me, like, at 12 watching Twin Peaks like this. Like, I mean, this is why I'm here. That's the reason, that's it. So. I don't know, I, you know, I did Transcendental Meditation, which David Lynch, like, does so much promo for. And in one of the promo videos that only I'm allowed to watch and you guys can, he talks about how he got inspiration for Twin Peaks along with many other things from whatever space he achieves from Transcendental Meditation, that it's almost a channeled bit of content yeah. and not his own. So it's interesting to think that That's very in, that, yeah. in that paradigm that it is channeled from whatever, is yeah. channeling everything else, you know? Well, so what I was going to say is that, you know, Twin Peaks, it's the same thing with Somerset, right? There's this element of the people in power, right? Which we've discovered some crazy fucking shit, dude. There's some shit going on right now here in uh, town. I, I'm not surprised by anything anymore, trust me. <laughs> dude, it's crazy, man. There's this, like, element of the town needs to preserve this idea of like what you mentioned, the 1950s 
sort of that veneer, right, of values, right? Yes. And so anything that falls afoul of that is evil, right, is the devil. But, like, it's just a sort of a cloak over everything, a screen, right? But that there's really all of these other things that, in, that are interplaying with one another, but we need to make it seem that that there's good and there's evil, right? But that's just not a thing, you know? It's just it's just trying to preserve that belief that that we're good, these things are bad, you know? Well, well, well uh, you know, like, from, 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 a, from a philosophical telemic perspective, you know why that happens, right? Because, I mean, this good and evil dichotomy, this dual, believing in duality, it's perpetrating the formulas, magical formulas of the previous year. Okay, the fact that if there is one good, good and evil, if there's me and you, if there's a stick like the strict like identification into our masks, that means that you know that's how you can actually believe into an intermediate, like a vicarious atonement by virtue of the Messiah, by virtue of like the anointed one. Now, what Telema does is like destroy this destroying this this idea i say okay there's no vicarious atonement because there's no me and you so if there's no me and you there is only again the sea of information then then what the, that our nature is divine i don't need a god to save me and so that also means that i don't need the veneer i don't need the you know the the, the certainty that there's everything is under control because there's no control to have it's pure chaos, but it's not like it's not like an anarchic destruction, dystopian chaos. It's chaos because chaos is the, it's it is the nature of reality. Now we can say this. Most people will not understand this because most people struggle with letting go of the mask of who they are. Nema was speaking about this, you know, in in the, in the Cincinnati Journal of Magic. He speaks about the dance of the masks. And I mean, of course, she goes up, she goes very Kabbalistic about that and say, OK, you know, like as a magician, you should like create a mask for each of your your persona onto the tree of life. And then you can dance the mask, not 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 uh, arbitrarily, but like, you know, by by, you know, understanding how you move from the paths of the tree of life, you know, very well. It's a, it's a very interesting exercise. But what she was trying to do is, OK, remember that at the end, there is no me, there is no you. There is nothing, <laughs> and that nothing is steeped in chaos. It's easy. It's easier said than done, though, because you know, people will fight to death to say, "No, no. What do you mean? It's not me. I am me. Of course, I am me. And if I am me, I need to control the situation. I need to be sure that everything is under control." But this is what you know, in Telema we call that's old Ionic, right? And of course, when you can say, "No, Telema was it was uh, brought in by Crowley in 1904," but the reality there is, it's it's a, again, there's no time. <laughs> so the reality, it's more of a fluid moment that is expanded, and we're still living through it. Hellier is part of it. Uh, Penny Royal is part of it. Twin Peaks is part of it. All of all of it is part of it. All of this is the phenomena. All of it. And things that we can, we haven't thought about yet, and things that maybe we won't see because we will like you know we'll be in fifty years time. I will be around in fifty years now. I'll be ninety. I'll be ninety three. Oh well then, <laughs> I mean that's uh, that's good. Maybe I should be at ninety three. Ninety three is a good day. It's a good time to die, I suppose. <laughs>
my own personal belief, I don't think there's a road or path to initiation that you can find by going and looking for it. Not one that's discernible and definable. Just like the phenomena, when you try to put your finger on it, you can never quite pin it down. And if you go looking for it, you'll never find it because its nature is not to be found. It finds you when the timing is right. And that timing is often right when you start to realize that maybe you are the destination of that experience and that journey. The road that reveals itself always leads back to you. I think that's what makes it feel so much like an initiatory experience because it's really all about self-discovery. You're the treasure, the terma that you've been looking for. And the road, that path to initiation, curves back upon itself like an Ouroboros. The observer observing itself, observing the observed. The emergence of the second order cybernetic system. Randomness and chaos coming into play in the process. A divinatory act. And then comes the Ballardian moment where you're presented with staying on the road or instead taking your hands off the wheel and letting the vehicle drift. Do you open yourself up to getting lost and not knowing into what new territories you'll veer? Possibly even territory where magic, enchantment, and the phenomena can all manifest. The way in which cybernetics, magic, and synchronicity have emerged in the course of our attempt to understand the Penny Royal mystery has been the most unexpected part of the journey for us, and definitely for me personally. Now we talk about all these strange things in terms of cybernetics and information to the point that it's become a running joke. But I don't think there's a way to unsee the role that cybernetics and information theory play in this mystery. I think it reveals the extent to which information and technology have always been a fundamental part of the phenomena, as well as magic and enchantment. We have to change the way we think about technology. Magic and enchantment and esoteric folk traditions are forms of technology. And I think we have to change the way we think about time and timing as well. Time is not an isolated entity or an exclusive value. We've been taught that everything we know is made up of time and space as vectors and conductors of causality. Everything that happens does so through the substrate of time and space. At least that's how we perceive it, and it's what made sense to Newton. Then Einstein came along, and a whole new generation of people started listening to him and developing models to explain what's going on in the universe. But Newton and Einstein are the same old alchemists, the same magicians who refuse to see themselves as magicians, building models that reveal the occulted mechanisms of the universe that we can't perceive, and in doing so reveal a means of control over what we can perceive. Call it what you will, but magic and science are the same, and the rest is just semantics. Both are technologies that help us exert control over the parts of reality we can perceive. The problem both science and magic face in equal measures is that we don't know what reality is. And there's a lot of the world, a lot of the universe, that we can't perceive. We can't control what we don't know, especially if it's meant to not be known, and it's hidden with purpose. If you want evidence of greater forces at work in the universe, you need not look any further than the seemingly purposeful encryption of the cosmic system files from all of us fleshy pieces of software. 
We've accumulated so much information in the past three years of our investigation of the Penny Roll mystery. So many names and places, so many events and times. The sheer amount of weirdness has drawn us deeper and deeper into the mystery. 1973, the Oakwood Witch Cult Controversy. 1974, the Serious Rising Tapes. Synchromysticism. Cundiff's Great Seal Memorial Pyramid. Fucking Nazis. 1975, Alexander Guterma buys the Mount Victory coal mine from the fucking Vice President of the United States. Allegations of a strange cult at that same mine. 1977, Guterma is killed in a suspicious plane crash. 79, Dan Dutton encounters the Oakwood Savants. 1985, Chuck Hayes and smuggled gemstones. 91, Chuck Hayes, Promise, and Casalero's suicide. And then in 94, the unsolved murders of Linda and Cody. 2002, the assassination of Sammy Catron at a fucking fish fry, apple pies in hand. The killing of the king. It goes on and on. So many more dates, times, and events correlating moments and recursions, circular motions, and clockwork correspondences. Law enforcement in Somerset and Pulaski County have an odd cyclical history of assassination. And then there's the tunnels. Tunnels and the subterranean come back around again and again. What is it in all of this that connects these things into such a strange constellation of indirect causalities, cycles, and return trajectories. All these people and events, all these dates and times, do they line up? Are they even connected? Can we draw lines between them like some map of temporal ley lines stretched across the years and decades, maybe even across space and time? Map making has become a major part of trying to understand this place and its mysteries, trying to draw lines connecting all of these data points, all of these bits of information. In our own position on the map, we've been trying to find that, trying to locate that point. We're trying to look at it all as a united topography, a snapshot of the surface of a constantly unfolding narrative. But all of these stories don't have to be part of the same topography or even part of the same single narrative. In all actuality, they're probably separate topographies and parallel narratives sharing the same strange trajectories. Odds are, none of these roads and paths connect, really, except through us and the stories we tell. It feels to me like the synchronicities we're experiencing are coming with more and more frequency, like we're moving towards some cosmic mirror at the edge of space and time, reflecting our intentions and observations with more frequency the nearer we get to it. And there's no doubt in my mind that there's something transmitting and receiving out there in the pitch black gulfs that may really just be reflections of an inner cosmos, the yet to be explored spaces the Penny Royal Mystery is taking us. As Doc Brown says to Marty, roads, where we're going, we don't need roads.
Penny Royal is written and produced by your host, Nathan Paul Isaac. Associate producers are Darian West and Kyle Cadell. Original musical score by Philip Clonch. Edited and mixed by Boone Williams. Sponsored by Jarfly Brewing Company and the International Paranormal Museum and Research Center. If you're interested in joining the investigation and diving deeper into the story, visit pennyroyalpodcast.com and support the show by becoming a member of the Liminal Lodge. Thanks for listening and keep digging. I just want to thank all of you, everyone, that's listened to Season 1 and Season 2 of Penny Royal and taken the journey with us. And I also want to thank all the guests that were so gracious to share their time, opinions, and experiences with all of us these last two seasons. There are a number of ways to support Penny Royal if you've enjoyed the show. The easiest way is to give us a review and rate the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever platform you use to stream podcasts. We've got some great shirts, posters, and stickers that you can pick up on our website. You can also join our Patreon community, The Liminal Lodge, where you can access hours of extra extended audio that didn't make it into the first two seasons of the show. Interact with experiments and applications we've developed and see our research in real time as we continue to dig into the Penny Royal mystery. Lastly, we'd love it if you'd recommend the show to a friend. Thanks so much for listening and supporting the show. I'm Nathan Paul Isaac, and this is Penny Royal.